um, to Luke chapter 9. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke. And, uh, and you can find our text, which is Luke 9, beginning verse 37 in the Pew Bible there. Please do bring your Bible, but uh, if you want to use the Pew Bible, please, it's 867 867. As you're turning there, several years ago, I, uh, I come across these from time to time. Uh, I love reading stories of uh, survival, news stories about shipwrecked people in particular and how they survived. One of them was a man named Jose Avon. He was adrift at sea, some estimate, uh, 16 months. He claimed to have survived off of turtles and rainwater. He was heading out from Mexico, heading to El Salvador, somehow ended up way over in the Marshall Islands on his 25-foot fiberglass boat. boat. The, the joke, of course, he... When they discovered him, he looked like Tom Hanks from Castaway, uh, of course, and he was he was struggling for health. Uh, th- there was a similar link in that whole uh, article, a BBC uh, article, that talked about three men from Mexico who uh, talked of, of surviving some nine, ten months uh, lost at sea. They ate uh, raw seagulls, uh, ducks, and fish. We ate everything raw. Any fish that came near the boat, we grabbed it and gulped it down. We drank rainwater because it rained uh, often. Twice we almost sank. The waves washed into the boat. We thought we were going to die. Two of them did jump uh, uh, and left the boat. But the three who remained were reading their Bibles and praying together to find hope. Uh, you know, you just love these stories. They're kind of the modern-day Robinson uh, Crusoe tales of survival. Why do we find those stories, at least I do, fascinating? I think it's because it assumes something in our experience as humans that all of us face deep struggles. And we, we ask ourselves, how, how am I going to survive a blank And obviously many people have encountered that and many books have been written. And if you go and just look on Amazon at, you know, the digital bookstore, you'll see a lot of titles. How do I survive? I even typed it in this morning. How do I survive? And immediately it pops up, right? Uh, You know, suggestions of different books that are popular on the list. I'll read off a few of them. How to survive uh, in the woods. How to survive a breakup. Uh, Some of these are not quite as perilously life-threatening. You know, how do I survive middle school? How do I survive um, parenting? Uh, How do I survive my parents? How do I survive grief or divorce or unemployment or a a gnome garden attack? Uh, G-N-O-M-E. Yes, that's actually a book published that Amazon sells. I know you're going to look for it this afternoon. Here's an interesting one. How to survive being married to your pastor. Here's, here's, another, here's, a, here's another one. There's a, it's, it's a pretty small audience, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, but bless their hearts, those women married to uh, pastors. Um, here's one. How to survive a pandemic. It was published in 2019. Just kidding. No one would have bought it, right? You know, no one, no one would have published a book in 2019 called that. Now, of course, it's a big seller. People have written it. It was published in 2020, not 2019. Some of you may not see any of those title as titles or uh, concerns is relevant to you, at least not yet. In this chapter, I mean, why do I even highlight that? I think I highlight that because you don't ask the question of survival when you're on the mountaintop, the proverbial, you know, so to speak, mountaintop experience. You, you don't ask yourself that question there. It's when you're in the valley. It's when you're in the plains. It's when you're in the valley of heartache and headache and suffering and even just the the general focus on the unknown, right? That we ask questions about how do I survive? How do I survive temptation? 
How do I survive these people or relationships or challenges? In this chapter in Luke, we read earlier of how Peter, when he was pressed and he was asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? Jesus asked him, who do people say? But then he asked him, Peter, who do you say that I am? What do you believe concerning me? And Peter said, I, you are the Christ of God. You are the chosen Messiah. I believe that. But if anybody here is, is, is wondering what that looks like to say something one day and feel it so you know, sincerely and then feel like you've taken steps back and, and uh, that's undermined the next day, you, you have comfort here. Because they are at the mountaintop and Peter's so excited he wants to camp out. Last week we read of an account where uh, three of them, are, are Peter, James, and John, are there at what we called the Mount of Transfiguration. It was like nothing anyone could ever imagine. And uh, they see Jesus. He's transfigured. He's not changed into something that he's not or uh, wants to be. It's revealed as to who he is. His glory shines so bright on the mountain that they're speechless. And frankly, human language can't even stretch to really capture and describe it. And they're there and it's, it's wonderful and they don't want to leave and they, don't, they can't imagine anything greater. Of course they can't because it's, it's full on truth. It's the glory of the living God. It shines brighter than any of their troubles or, you know, trivial things of life. It's so wonderful. But then God says no to you, even to Jesus and to his disciples who would follow him. Now you're down in the valley because they are met at the bottom of the valley, just like Moses is met there. You know, the glory is shining on his face. And then he meets a bunch of people worshiping an idol and a calf. Uh, you know, the same thing. He, he steps down off of the, the mountain, the disciples with him, and they encounter chaos. They encounter uh, unbelief and other, uh, you know, the pains of this fallen, broken world that we live in. And that's where we are going to, to come. So I invite you to stand as we read God's word. We're going to read beginning in verse 37 all the way to the end of the chapter. So bear with so they come down off the Mount of Transfiguration. The next day, it says there, verse 37, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is only a child. And behold, a, sea, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and he will heart, and will hardly leave him. And I beg you, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose from among them as to which would, of them would be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me who sent me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Well, we tried to stop him because he did not he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against us, against you, is for you. 
Verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the, of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Verse 57, when they were going along the road, someone said to him, that is Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead and let leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is God's word. Um, Thanks be to him. You may be seated. Let's ask for his help. Father, it would be uh, foolish uh, for us to assume that it would benefit us just to to hear someone speaking and, and just to gather here. But we believe that you visit and inhabit this time, we pray you would, by your spirit, uh, take these words and, and may it be your, may it be us listening to you speak through your word because we need it. We need help. And even if we feel so strong, would you would you tear away the foolishness and, and, and help us to acknowledge our need? Please, right now, in Christ's good name, work. Amen. Well, any good survival manual recognizes uh, a few things. Uh, one of the things that a good survival, we're not talking about gnomes in your garden kind of survival, but real challenging things, is that it acknowledges the weight of the struggle, right? That's one thing that's 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 there in a good uh, survival uh, work book. It speaks to the common pitfalls or blind spots in addressing the problem. It also addresses false ways of dealing with that problem of how to survive, like and sometimes it's entirely counterintuitive, right? Like if you have a if you have a survival book for how to survive at sea, one of the things that they will say in that book is do not drink. Even if you're extremely thirsty, do not drink what? Seawater. The seawater. Uh, it will it will dehydrate and shut down your body. It is not wise. Do not do that, even though it seems so right. It, it seems like that would make the most sense. A good survival manual also Consider the cost of decisions along the way and the, the places where you're going to be at crossroads. This it will also hopefully at some point address, uh, you know, with wisdom, the ways that you can have hope in that survival. Well, I'll get around to how I think this speaks to something that we need to survive. Maybe you've already thought of what that is. I, I don't know. But here's the way I want to break it down. This large section, I know it's quite a bit, uh, in, uh, under three questions. The first is, what is Jesus condemning? Or maybe another way of putting it is confronting. And that's verses 37 through 43. And then the next section is, and this is listed in the order of service. The next question is, what are the disciples missing? And I think that picks up around verse 44 through 56. And then the last question the closing verses 57 to 62 is, what is all of this costing? So that's where we'll work through. I'll remind you of the questions. First, what is Jesus confronting or condemning here? Well, it's two things. It's 
the enemy and unbelief. In other words, it's the enemy from without and the enemy from within. We all have to struggle with an enemy from within, our flesh, our, our crooked hearts, uh, you know, the things that are w- within us. Then there's the, there's the enemy from without. And the enemy from without is the world and its, its way of operating apart from and opposed to uh, God and the ways of God. It's filled with, in fact, counterfeit gods and false gods that make false promises and don't deliver. And then, of course, the enemy from without, the other one is the father of lies, Satan. Who likes to twist and lie and deceive. That's that's his craft. My favorite hymn of all times, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We tremble, Luther says. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. One little word. What is that one word? It's the word made flesh. It is Jesus, the victor. Jesus well, and it's, it's already coming into focus. He's not even the resurrected victor here yet, but he has the authority. He can simply speak. I mean, look at the text there again. It's, it's right there in verse 42. He rebukes in one word this unclean demonic spirit that has affected this child comes out just at the voice of Jesus. He's healed instantly. Why can't the disciples, the apostles do this? Jesus, we know, had empowered them earlier as apostles to testify in his name to perform these things, to provide healing and to cast out demons. Well, something something is amiss, and they are not trusting in Christ's power. There's some element of presumption on their part. They were trusting in themselves. It does appear that Jesus is rather, uh, you know, exasperated. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he said this under his breath as he was walking away from the crowd. But, I mean, look at what, he, what does he say to himself. How long? Oh, faithless, verse 41, Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long? How long do I have to be here? What does Jesus see? What, what, is, what is the problem? Well, he sees unbelief. He sees self-reliance. He sees self-interest that's in view here. Now, the father of this boy who is uh, who is affected, he didn't give up. There's some there's a, there's an element of faith that's to be honored here because he didn't give up. He didn't say, well, the disciples, the apostles couldn't do it. So I guess this is this is just a big hoax. No, they couldn't do it in Jesus name. So he says, let me find Jesus. And he presses forward. He finds Jesus. And then when you read it in uh, in other gospel accounts, which like, for instance, the gospel of Mark, uh, chapter nine, the same the same story is captured there with more detail. And it says that the father says, if you can help us. And Jesus says, and again, I don't know his tone, but it's something like, if I can. All things are possible, Jesus says there to this father for those who believe. And then the, the father comes back. Mark 9, verse 24, it's one that I memorized uh, probably 20-something years ago. I do believe, the Father says, but help my unbelief. Faith can be very small, but very real. And I, 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 we, it is wise of us to remind ourselves that faith can be very, very Feeble, but very substantive. And it can be, and it is commonly intermingled with unbelief. 
I, I, I know this. I know this because I've walked with you. I know this because I've walked through the I've, I've walked through uh, valleys and dark places. And, and I, I, this the, the best way that I can describe it, if you want to put some imagery around it, is faith is like a bridge. Faith is utilizing a bridge to connect us from leaving ourselves to the power of God. It's a bridge from us to the power of God. It doesn't matter how rickety the bridge is. doesn't matter how long the bridge is. doesn't matter how short the bridge is or how strong the bridge is. What matters is what's on the other side. The God whose mercies are new every morning, who has all power and faithfulness. on the other side that really matters. Jesus is showing us that he has authority over darkness. He's confronting unbelief. He's commending the vulnerable, honest, maybe small faith of this father that is real. But what are the disciples missing? Here's my, here's my next question, this next few verses. Because in verse 43, they're marveling. You know, they're like, wow, the majesty of God is on display, which is kind of an abrupt you know, shift to what we're going to find next, which is they fail to understand something. Now, I'm not saying they don't have faith. Indeed, they do. But faith seeks understanding. And sometimes we lack understanding, and clearly they do here. Because even in view of the majesty of God, they can't humble themselves. They can't hear what he's going to say. And they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. This, I believe, right here, the next set of verses, beginning in verse 44, where is, is where Jesus predicts again. I think it's the third time in the gospel account where he said, listen, the Son of Man is heading to Jerusalem. I'm going there. I will be killed, and I will be raised from the dead. This is what he's predicting. And then, it, and then they can't hear it. Now, I don't think this is a problem of, of you know, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not an audible thing. It's, it, is, it is not a, even an intellectual thing. It's, it's a problem of the will, because if they acknowledge what Jesus is saying then and they embrace it, it means suffering for them, too. And that's not their dream or their vision. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He's going to take out the Romans and Herod. We're going to enjoy the kingdom of God here because we already said you're the Christ. Let's get on with glory. And Jesus says, well, no, actually, this is the way it's going to work. And I, I, I keep saying this to you guys. This is not me speaking. This is Jesus to the disciples. It's going to start with suffering. And then, then we enjoy the glory. Jesus is not heading to glory to ascend a throne. They want the prominence of who's going to be at the right, who's going to be at the left, who has status, who has the benefits. But they lack understanding. So what does Jesus do? He says, let's come over here. Let's get this child. Let's bring this little one up here. Verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is one who is great. Now, this is important where you have to kind of locate yourself culturally and in the context. In the ancient Near Eastern culture of that day... Uh, children uh, were, were, would not be the greatest. Okay, now you, you, that's hard to imagine. I mean, think about this for a moment. In that day and age, that culture, you didn't have to show honor or hospitality to anyone unless they were your peer or they were your superior in some fashion. 
And and so, you know, children would, would you know, not to be seen nor heard. They should be they should be out, out of sight. I know that's hard for us to imagine in a culture that idolizes children. I was reading last year in USA Today that the youth sports industry increased. It's a multi-billion dollar market. From 2010 to 2017, it increased to $19 billion. Many people hoped that COVID would cool that off, but now they're predicting that youth sports will increase to a set by 2026 to a $77 billion industry. I guess we're chasing some greatness. I don't know. Uh, the world says that greatness is a pyramid. And those who have and are skilled and praised and prized and achieve and accomplish and make money and have status and prominence, they climb to the top. And that's who's valuable. And Jesus comes and says, oh, no, no, no. I'm turning all of that nonsense on its head. And in fact, in fact, if you want to be great, you need to become low. You need to be a servant of all. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's, it's the words of Jesus. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Now, the, the word servant, boy, that's an ambition we're not really pressing for. Uh, a, a servant... There's a Greek word for servant. There's a couple of them, but one of them is doulos, which means a slave. It means someone who's given up their rights. A slave, a doulos, is someone who is exercising and working according to the wishes and the will of another. Their activities are directed by another. I think if Jesus had picked someone, because we can't imagine, it wasn't that he brought forward a child and said, oh, these are so precious, oh, we Children, the the future of America. If Jesus were to say, let me bring somebody up here to say what would seem small and what would seem undesirable and where you should stop arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, he would bring up a migrant worker. Someone who doesn't have financial resources, doesn't have social capital, doesn't speak the language, is, is working tirelessly to, 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 to barely get by, let's say, who has in society the lowest of jobs that many other people don't want, doesn't have access. I could go on. You get the picture. I met one yesterday. Gentleman, he lost his car keys, and I was going to help him, and he was a very kind man. The only way that I could communicate with this man was through his daughter, who was uh, a smiling young girl who at multiple times came out in the snow uh, out of their car, the other car, with a thin coat on, and, and it stood there and translated between me and, the, and her father. And um, she smiled the whole time. And she was joyful. And she was glad at the end to smile and her father smiled on her, and he was grateful. And there was something beautiful there. He actually wanted to give me a tip. I, I, I don't need the tip. You give the tip to her. It's a beautiful picture. It was an inconvenience for her, 
yet she served under her father's smile. And I almost wonder if it's because she learned to be a servant from her father in other areas in ways where he found joy in serving. That's what we shouldn't miss. As strange as it sounds, we are servants of Christ. Servants of people made in his image. Servants of his kingdom purposes. Looking at the Father. And then looking to the Son who is our example. The Son of Man. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. So Jesus, though, here... Regardless of their unbelief, regardless of what demonic activity is going on, regardless, he is setting his face. We read this phrase here. It's in verse 51. It's in verse 53. He set his face like stone. Right? He is, he is fixed. He is prepared. Jesus has something in mind and something in view that he has got a resolve about him. Now, it obviously echoes, right? He's heading to suffering. He's heading towards what the world would say his demise, which is not, it's actually our victory. And he, we, it's the echo of what we heard read in our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 50, where it says that his face was set like flint, like stone. I can't help but think that there's an echoing over intended here from the prophet to the person and work of Jesus. And notice there, he also says this in Isaiah, going back to our Old Testament reading, I've set my face like flint. And not, not just that, oh, I'm so determined, and indeed Jesus was, but he knew that he was going to meet opposition. He knew that he was going to be tempted. He knew that he was going to be in anguish. He knew that he'd be mocked and beaten and ridiculed and scorned and face great anguish and pain. And this is what he says. Yet I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. When we say his face was set, it was set on the Lord God who is going to comfort him. The Lord God who is going to see him through this challenge and suffering as a servant. He was vindicated. He is vindicated. He's risen from the grave. Where, my friends, is your face set? You know, I asked you a number of weeks ago, who, you know, what do you serve? Who are you? What are you a servant of? Who are you a servant of? And the answer is not no one or nothing. Because we're all serving something or someone. And you say, well, my face really isn't said anywhere. No, it is. It indeed is. Our, our priorities. Is it to build wealth? To build security, a name, a resume? You fill in the blank. What are you going to serve or who are you going to serve? An author I appreciate, uh, a British author who's moved to America. His name is Oz Guinness. He's a... He's a an author, he's a Christian kind of social commentator. He wrote in a book called The American The American Hour. Americans, he writes, with a purely secular view of life, have too much to live with and too little to live for. Everything is permitted and nothing is important. But once growth and prosperity ceased to their reasons of existence, they are bound to ask questions about the purpose and meaning of life. Where am I from? Where is this all going? 
Why are we living? And secularism does not provide a satisfactory answer for that. The gospel does. Did you hear that? We have so much to live with and so little to live for. Young people, can I, can I speak to you for a second? The future may not be as bright for you. I'm not trying to be a doomsayer. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. Only the Lord knows the future. But it might be worse for you than other generations. And that is okay. Because it very well may reveal something in all of us and in you. That good question, what am I living for? Who am I living for? And I'm telling you, Jesus is worth it. How will you spend your life, young people? You only have one. How will you spend it? How will you use your time and your gifts, your words, your money, your relationships? Will it be self-seeking or service to the king? I'm telling you, he is worth it. Well, that leads to the next question, which you ought to be asking. If that indeed is my desire to not be self-seeking and serving, is what is this all going to cost? Because beginning in verse 57, we see Jesus addressing this. In fact, if you look at your Bible, it even says sometimes there are these little subheadings, right? Maybe yours has it there. It's printed. It's not actually the word of God. It's just a way of kind of describing subsections. It might say in your Bible, the cost of discipleship, right? Or maybe it says the cost of following Jesus. That's what discipleship is, being a disciple, following him. What's the cost? Verse 57, Jesus says the cost is very high. We need faith, which can be very small, but we need it. But we need to have the humility of a servant, but we also need to have the urgency of making a decision. And that's not being pressed into a corner kind of decision. That's being raised up to a level to be able to see that sometimes you're at a crossroads and you genuinely have to decide. Jesus is saying in verse 58, look, I don't have foxes have holes and birds have nests. I don't even have a path. We're not going to a palace. I don't have a mansion. I've got none of that. It will be difficult. And then to another, he says in verse 59, follow me. And the man says, well, can I please bury my dad first? To which Jesus says, by all means, take as many days of bereavement as you so choose. That's our HR policy. No. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. That's so sensitive, right? Do you wonder what that means? Well, you have to come back next week. (laughs) Jesus is not against funerals. Jesus is not saying dishonor your father and mother. He would never say dishonor your father and mother and break the fifth commandment. So what does Jesus mean? I think it's just, I mean, we don't know, in fact, that the father died. But I do know this, that again, you set it in the cultural context, their Jewish culture, and even some of the pagans, if someone were to die, they would have immediately taken the body that very day to bury it. So he wouldn't even be having this conversation if his dad just died. With Jesus, he, the father would have already been buried. Make sense? Now, it could be, like as was the custom, they would sometimes take and place in a tomb on a shelf 
the, the remains, and then after about a year, they would take the, the, the bones and then put in a, what's called an ossuarium with, uh, you know, with others. The family would displace uh, the remains of, the, of the, the, the dead one. Maybe that's to be a year from now. So maybe his dad has died. I don't think his dad has died at all. I, I, I tend to think that what is in essence being said here is, listen, I don't want to dishonor my father and I don't want to tick off my family could, could we just hold off until I get serious about Jesus? And Jesus, in all of his perfect wisdom and discernment, said, Listen, I, you, if you're hanging around for the inheritance and the, and the pleasure of your family, then you've already decided. There, there's, there, there, choose today who you will serve. Choose. Luke 14, we're going to read this in a few weeks. Luke 14 says this, Jesus, if anyone comes to me, and this is a strange passage too, and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yet his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is that saying? Well, Jesus isn't against hating people in your family, but he's saying the priority is so clearly, is so preeminently on him that nothing, even noble good things like family and friends, are to place themselves above Jesus and following him. That is the cost of discipleship. There is no middle ground. You need to make a decision. And the dead can bury the dead. It's just another way, I think, of Jesus communicating. Listen, those who are spiritually dead, those who are not in tune with the things of God, they can tend to those things. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot have competing interest. A lot of people were, a lot of people then, a lot of people now are serving vain things, material things, even presumably noble things like family and friends and the praise of parents. But Jesus says, no, follow me. Do not be double minded. Now, I, I know. Listen, I've, you probably have had that experience like I have on any given week where you, you, you wonder, am I taking like one step forward and two steps back? I mean, I thought I was trying to prioritize Jesus, and where am I at? Like, this is like really messed up. Well, the, the problem is when you begin to assume that you're the only one who has that problem. Because you are not. You are not alone, and the disciples are part of that illustration here. They did have faith. They did have that mixed with unbelief and sin. But don't miss Jesus. It's not... Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his great book, The Cost of Discipleship, talks about cheap grace, right? Because we, we, we can't ignore the gravity of this. Let me read it. It's kind of a long quote, but just bear with me. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's preaching baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which, by which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for those for whose sake a man will pluck out an eye if it causes him to stumble. It is the call, it's the call of Jesus at which the disciples leave their nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. 
And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It's, and I don't miss this one. Because this is not free grace. This is not cheap grace. It's costly because it cost a man his life. And it's a grace because it's given a man the only, it's given man the only true life. This little episode that we just read here in the gospel of Luke, the latter part of chapter 9, I think it could be a chapter in a survival book called How to Survive Living in a Culture that is Affluent and Prosperous, Idolizes Children, Idolizes Comfort, Idolizes Security. I mean, I'm telling you, if there's anything that this text says to us, it corrects two mottos that are so ingrained in our culture, and here they are, and I don't like either of them. One is safety first. For crying out loud, if I have not heard enough of that, is anybody with me? Safety first. Safety first. Safety first. There are more important things. The other one is, never do today what you can put off till tomorrow. Jesus is saying suffering comes, not security, not safety, not comfort, not predictability. And Jesus does this himself, right? He leaves the comfort and the praise of, of heaven. He, he enters our world. He makes himself vulnerable. He undergoes misery. The problem with the guy who wanted to go bury his father wasn't procrastination. It was priorities. Jesus is saying, choose today. What will you choose? I mean, it's not safe to open yourself up to people. Relationships and ministry are messy. It's not safe sometimes to put yourself out there. In loving and serving other people. What are you going to do? It is not convenient. It is not comfortable. This is challenging. This is immensely challenging. Following him into. And by the way remember it's daily right. We read that last week. Take up your cross daily. That's that ongoing priority. It's not the commitment. Oh everybody makes a commitment. I've been there. You know I've, I've performed like 50 weddings I've been there on the day when someone makes a decision and makes a commitment. But it's not that commitment. It's the daily ones that keeps that in view and in, and, 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 and in mind and in priority and going through it again and again. Today, where will you be? What will you do if you love me? Jesus is saying in sharing and repenting and reprioritizing and following him, following him into forgiveness and love. We cry out to him. We say, Lord, I I love you. Please help my unbelief. My unbelief in this time of grief, longing, sickness, a bitter struggle with difficult people, temptations that feel like addiction. And all I can say to you, back to our survival story, is don't drink the water, that stupid seawater of self-reliance. Which always, by the way, manifests itself in prayerlessness. 
because that's why the disciples couldn't drive out the demon. Because Jesus said only these can only be driven out by prayer elsewhere. Temptations that seize you, anxiety, hunger for control, more certainty, more 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 certainty, security. Instead of that, instead of drinking the seawater of self-reliance, as it were, our, our best, wisest move is to put out our cup and to pray for rain. <laughs> Have mercy. Have mercy. I'm waiting. Help my unbelief so I can see clearly and choose today to be your servant. Father, I pray you do that for all of us, everyone here. Pray that Jesus, by the work of your spirit, God, would shine brighter and stronger than our circumstances and our problems. Would you forgive us, Lord, for our prayerlessness? I pray you'd protect us from the harm of self-centeredness, the harm of fear. I pray you'd protect us against the enemies of the flesh, the world, and the devil. Pray you'd... Stir within us a boldness to bear witness to who you are and what you've done in our lives. That we would say you're the Christ, not in our words alone. Not less than our words, but more than our words and our priorities. We love you. We pray you'd help our unbelief. Lord, we pray you'd be merciful. There are many who are in harm's way. who are trying to address what really is an awful pandemic. There are many people's lives who are impacted in more than one way. Lord, there are people that are suffering for a whole host of reasons, some of which we don't even know that are in secret, some of which are in plain view, some of which are in countries like Tonga that are struggling to get by even without a volcano and a tsunami. Would you make us humble and grateful? Would you make us generous? Would you make us a people who are eager to be servants, not to to be served, to serve our own interest? Guide us, we pray. Have mercy, Lord, on those who are struggling Emotionally, those who are feel very weighed down with loneliness and forms of temptation that just seem insurmountable. She give them faith, faith to exercise, faith that seeks understanding. We pray all this in the good and sufficient name of our Savior.